This is the Personal Finance Show. Finance Show. I'm Bo Humphreys, and today I am here with Sean Cooper. Sean Cooper is a senior pension analyst. He's a personal finance writer and a money coach, and now he's the author of a book called Burn Your Mortgage. Uh, Sean saved his butt off for years to build up a $170,000 down payment for his $425,000 house, and then over the next three years and two months, Sean paid off the remaining $255,000 mortgage and actually burned his mortgage papers. Hi, Sean. Welcome. Hi, Bo. It's great to be here. So, Sean, I heard that actually burning your mortgage papers was not the easiest thing to do. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that went down? Well, it wasn't as instantaneous as the, it looked on television. I okay. actually <laughs> had to struggle with the lighter for about two minutes, and I almost lit my suit on fire. So, you know, it wasn't as magical as it looked on CBC's The National. So there was no, like, practice burning? Or what What were the, like, how do you get mortgage papers uh, these days anyway? What are they? Are they just your statements, or...? Well, it was actually, I printed off the paperwork from the internet because <laughs> I didn't actually have any paperwork. Yeah. And yeah, I hadn't had, I mean, it was my first time burning mortgage papers. I was actually going to, fun fact, I was actually going to tear them up, but CBC's like, you've got to do something more spectacular like for the camera. It so has to involve fire or something. Exactly. Okay. So then I decided to light it on fire and then the rest was history. Okay. Well, uh, you know, that's pretty awesome. So you wrote this book, Burn Your Mortgage, and you actually burn the mortgage papers, but this is about burning your mortgage, paying it off quicker. You know, I read your book, and the thing that I like most about this book is the theme is about achieving your goals and uh, making choices that are right for you. So you set a goal, and you did everything you had to do to reach it. And uh, you know, you're you wrote this book, and you're in it, you're not theorizing about if you do this, then maybe this will happen. You actually did it, right? Which is different from a lot of people who are like, put this money away and you'll retire with a million dollars. It's a it's a kind of a different thing when you're talking about something you actually did and even quicker uh, than most people would do it. So this book has a lot of great stuff into it, uh, which we'll, we'll get into. But the underlying theme is goal setting. So I guess the first question is, how do you get so good at setting goals and, and then obviously achieving them? Well, as I mentioned, an example in the book, Canadian rapper Drake, he set himself the goal of earning $25 million by the time that he reached age 25. And I got to set that goal for <laughs> myself. Unfortunately, I, I didn't reach that goal myself either, but it just goes to show the power of goal setting. And even in terms of like setting goals in your career or even goals in school, um, goal setting is, is useful in all different aspects of your life. So I just find like with people's finances, if they don't really set themselves goals, then they can find themselves kind of living paycheck to paycheck and not having something to work towards in the future. So by having a goal, you kind of feel motivated each day that you get up and you work one step closer in, in order to achieving your goals. So it doesn't have to be burning your mortgage like me. It could be saving towards a down payment, saving towards vacation, or even saving towards retirement. But it kind of gives you that spark, that motivation to get up and uh, work every single day. 
how did you know that you needed to set goals to achieve this? Like, did you try not like trying to achieve things without goals and you're, I'm not getting anywhere. Is that how it started? I mean, if I didn't set the goal of paying off my mortgage in, as fast as I could in a little over three years time, I probably would have paid off my mortgage in 25 years. I mean, I would have been like, what's the point of paying any extra money? I could have just traveled and gone out to restaurants and bought rounds of drinks for everyone and just paid the minimum amount. I mean, interest rates are so low. Why be in any hurry to pay it off? But instead of using interest rates to take it easy on paying on my mortgage, I thought of it in a different way. I thought, you know, my mortgage rates are so low, I can put as much money towards the principal as possible and pay off my mortgage in a super fast amount of time. If and when interest rates are higher in the future, that mortgage debt is going to cost a lot more. So why not pay it off when debt is super cheap? That's my point of view. But unfortunately, it seems like a lot of Canadians are using low interest rates to use their houses as ATMs or pile on more consumer debt, but I see it differently. It's it, it, this is true. The uh, the another popular belief is that you're not paying much interest. Say you're paying two or three percent, but and I could invest my money and make more than that. So why don't I do that? And I think you just kind of explained that uh, a lower interest rate means uh, less interest uh, exactly. that you pay. And and I don't really think that most people know how much. Well, they might know, but they don't really consider how massive the amount of interest can be that you pay. And uh, in your book, you talk you talk about amortization schedules and how they're really heavily weighted in, in interest when the interest is high. It's, yes, especially um, with mortgages. I mean, mortgage for most people is the biggest debt of their lifetime. And if you pay off your mortgage in 25 or 30 years, once mortgage interest is included, you could uh, end up spending almost double the initial purchase price of your house. And when you put it to people that way, they can definitely be shocked. But um, if they just pay the minimum amount, whatever the mortgage payment is, they don't really think of anything about it. But, you know, if something happens later on, they lose their job or somebody gets sick or there's an emergency repair, then that's when people can run into to problems and you know jobs are far from guaranteed these days uh precarious employment is the new norm bill morneau i guess caught some flack for saying millennials should get used to job churn but it's true um so it's true for me i wanted to get rid of my mortgage as soon as possible because to be honest i don't know whether i'll wake up tomorrow and find out my job is being sent overseas it's a really good point because we're taught all of this stuff by our parents and our parents grew up in a world where you get a job, a nine to five for 40 years, and you pay off your house during that time, and then you get a pension, and then everyone's happy. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist anymore. The nine to five, it still exists, but it's going away, right? I mean, people uh, maybe work nine to five, but then they go home and have dinner and then work till midnight. They so. do their personal finance uh, writing and uh, work at the uh, supermarket, as <laughs> you did. Maybe, but uh, yeah, I mean, I know plenty of like directors, you know, they, I guess, do the nine to five, go home, see their family for an hour and then stay up till midnight. So, you know, the Internet has kind of made people work 24 seven in North America. People have all these opinions about what you should have done and what's the best thing for everybody to do. But, you know, I keep going back to you actually have proof that what you did works because you did it. People can't ignore that you did this. Oh, you should have invested, Sean, or you should have, uh, you know, why did you waste all your money getting a house? And But now you have a house, uh, you have steady rental income, you have two jobs now, right? 
Yes, I'm only down to only two, two jobs. Okay. I guess if uh, you don't count being a landlord, that would be three. Well, okay, then then so three plus four. You you're, you wrote a book. That's a job, especially promoting it as mm-hmm. you're doing now. You're 31. 32. Actually. 32. When was your birthday? February 28th. Okay. It was, uh, Actually, it was the day before my uh, book launch, yeah. so I had my uh, actual birthday and then my book birthday the <laughs> next day, so that's kind of interesting. That's awesome. But you paid the mortgage off uh, when you were 30, right? Yes, correct. Um, I paid it off just before I turned uh, 31, a, a few months before that. Okay, yeah, yeah, perfect. So you're 32, which is still uh, very young, and you're now taking all the money that you were paying in your mortgage and uh, you're investing that now. I'm actually going and blowing it at the dog <laughs> races. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? G- kudos to you, because you know you can do whatever you want now. But <laughs> exactly. But uh, in all seriousness, you are investing it, I'm sure. Yes. So what I talk about in my book is the first step in achieving financial freedom is a payoff house. But if all your money and net worth is in your house, it's hard to have any money to spend if you ever want to retire one day. So I'm taking that cash flow that I was putting towards my mortgage because I'm used to putting it that money aside and I'm splitting it between my tax-free savings account and my RSP because I'm already used to saving money and I need some money to eventually like retire. So might as well do that. And you got tons of contribution room. I'm sure Plenty from of all room. of the work the work that you've done. So you're way ahead of all of these people who are complaining about what you did. So it, who cares about them, right? But it doesn't matter what they say. Everyone will just try to crap all over your, you know, your goals and your dreams because they're not theirs. And everyone thinks they know what's right for other people without even asking them what it is that they want. You know, you wanted a house, and now you have a house and tons of cash flow. Congratulations to you. So I, I do want to address some of the people. You know, you have a couple of quotes from the haters in your book, but this one is one that Dave Ramsey read on his uh, show. It goes like this. I'm not particularly happy for him. I pity him. He's a model victim of a deranged cultural ethos that elevates work and money and possessions above all. He's relieved that his house, where he barely lives, is paid off. Great, but is he satisfied with any other aspect of his life? How could he be? When he, when has he had time to be? So, Sean, tell us the truth, the real truth. Are you just a miserable person who hates his life because he was forced into paying off his mortgage quickly? Like, do you, why do you care so much about owning your home if you don't spend any time in it, according to this guy? How does this internet stranger know you so well? It's funny, I've gotten a lot of comments like that. Another favorite one of mine was, what am I going to do next? Sell one of my kidneys and buy a car. And and why are these things so extreme to these people? Just you had a goal and you worked towards it. I think it's just because of the whole mentality of Canadians these days of piling on as much debt as possible. And the millennial generation has only ever known low interest rates. I mean, we've grown up at a time when it's super cheap to borrow money. So a lot of people um, are like, why should I be in any hurry to pay down debt? And a lot of people don't understand the way debt or interest works because, of course, there's not really like mandatory financial literacy in a lot of provinces. No, so there isn't. people just kind of learn about credit cards the first time when they go to college or university during frosh week and they see the kiosk there and they get like a nice mug or a yeah. t-shirt and uh then they're like, oh, the minimum payment is so affordable. And then they don't realize how much interest they're paying. So I think I kind of, you know, 
went at the opposite like opposite way that most people um, are going now like people are taking on a lot of debt but I just decided to say enough is enough and I want to get rid of my debt as soon as possible so I think that's kind of what irks people and just to be clear I'm not saying everyone should pay off their mortgage in three years kind of the message of my book is it's great to pay off your mortgage sooner than 25 years and you don't necessarily have to give up all the things that you love in your in, in life. You can still enjoy your favorite things like your iPhone and your Starbucks. You don't have to go on a craft dinner diet or anything like that, but maybe have a look at how you're spending your money. Like, do you really need that premium pay cable package where you're only watching cable one hour a night? And do you really need those two cars sitting in the driveway when you barely use them at all? So it's just kind of getting people to look at the bigger picture of their finances. Um, it's not telling everybody to live in the basement like me. No, it's it's true. It, yeah. So so Sean's book is the whole thing is full of great tips and and even if you take even if you just read it for 5 minutes you'll find one or two things that you can do to change. It doesn't even matter. You you should buy this book if you're you're not even thinking about a house because it has like uh ways to save money on things and all the things that he figured out when he was trying to achieve his goal which a lot of us, w you know, wouldn't even think of. But I'm going to talk about people a little bit more, the people who are questioning you, which, I mean, obviously, if you do anything good, people are going to think that it's somehow bad. It, which the, it, the haters certainly came out of the woodworks, that's for sure. Oh, that it's just, you know, I really do like what Dave Ramsey did on his show, and he just ripped apart these haters. And he was, he was so upset with everybody who was just dating on your... He's going to have a heart attack. He seemed pretty upset. He was just, he was very, he was almost so proud of you. And he talked, he said, he said, as my grandmother would say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. But some people have trouble with the idea that it was uh, even possible to pay off $255,000 in three years, mm -hmm. no matter how many jobs you were working. You know, so that, that's $85,000 a year. I have a few friends who work in the in the realm of mortgages, and they were wondering about your prepayment and payment doubling privileges, and and they wondered if you didn't have to pay any penalties uh, to do this so quickly. Can you give us a quick summary of uh, of how it was done, and was it was it eighty five thousand per year, and how much of that eighty five thousand was lump sum? Did you pay penalties? Sure. I mean, I don't have a photographic memory no, of but all just the in payments general. that I've made, yeah. but I can tell you about kind of the strategy that I went about. So. When I shop for my mortgage, and I talk about this in the book, I use a mortgage broker. I didn't just go to my local bank branch and just sign up for a mortgage there. Good I look idea. For, now, as I mentioned is in the book as well, um, I look for a mortgage uh, with features that I needed. For example, I wanted a mortgage, of course, of course, with a low interest rate, but I also wanted one with flexible prepayment privileges because I knew that I wanted to pay it down sooner. And when you come, generally speaking, when you look at the big banks' mortgages, their prepayment privileges aren't really that generous. Some of them only let you make like a lump sum payment on your anniversary date. Like you can't make the payments throughout the year. But that's generally what I know, like mm -hmm. in terms of my general knowledge about mortgages, that it's there aren't you can't put an extra fifty thousand dollars as far as I know. Yeah, so with my lender that I went with, First National, they're like, I think the biggest non-bank lender in Canada, they were very flexible. So they allowed me to double up my payments, increase my payment by 15%, I believe, and also uh, make up to 15% lump sum payments during the year. So I actually took advantage of all those prepayment privileges okay. and 
I, they actually accidentally uh, let me prepay a bit too much, they told me, because okay. I guess they had never seen somebody so uh, <laughs> ambitious to pay off their mortgage. But it was their mistake, not mine, so okay. I didn't face any penalties. So they um, could have charged you a penalty for doing that. As, as I've, I've read, if you pay too much according to the agreement, which then they will review later, they review the payments you make and... But I guess they kind of got the revenge on me because the last mortgage payment was supposed to be a partial payment and they took out the full payment and then they made me jump through hoops to get the money back. Uh, so, um, you know, they kind of got the revenge on me. Okay, well, but you did get that money back. Yes, um, I had to pay some sort of like mortgage, I guess, discharge fees and legal fees and they took extra money away from me. So I'm like, why can't you just apply that towards the legal fees? But they're like, no, sir, we can't do that. We have to like send you a check later on. But a bit of, I guess... Uh, Asking to speak with the managers kind of got the situation resolved. So, you know, don't give up when the customer service representatives say no. That's kind of my main message. Yeah, always always try to uh, negotiate or like ask for what you want. Exactly, because one interesting story, I actually got an NSF charge because I had money coming out of my bank accounts and made all these prepayments and too much came out. So not only did I get the NSF charge with my bank, um, First National, my lender, charged me a penalty because I didn't have enough for the uh, mortgage payments, so I faced something like $160 in penalties, but I phoned both of them up and kind of said, you know, it's my first time making this mistake. Is there any way that you can waive it? And kind of said, you know, when my mortgage comes up for renewal, like uh, um, I might consider going with somebody else. I guess them not knowing I wasn't going <laughs> to ever have to <laughs> renew my mortgage. You basically bamboozled them <laughs> with that one. But yeah, they uh, kind of waived the penalty, both them and my bank. So, you know, it de- defi- definitely doesn't hurt to, I guess, speak up for yourself. And as they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, and I, th- I, I think it's a really good um, observation because, well, with a lot of big companies, it's difficult to get a hold of management or anybody who can do like if you Rogers is a good example. You know, I don't. I, let's not get into that <laughs> because I have, I have some horror stories. Worst, worst stories from that. Oh, it's just uh, yeah. You know, I've made it through. That's all I can say. But <laughs> if you ask, sometimes depending on the company, you will get what you want. But if you don't ask, you're gonna get nothing. It's guaranteed. If you do nothing. Nothing will happen. Exactly. Right? If you don't try to pay off your mortgage, it's not going to get paid off. That's right. So, okay, that that kind of explains it. Fifteen percent of uh, of two hundred fifty grand, right? So you would have you would have been able to pay like you know ten percent of two hundred fifty grand is twenty five grand. So mm-hmm. you're li- paying probably like twenty five to thirty grand every year. Uh, was it fifteen percent of the original prepay? Like yes, of the original balance of two hundred and. Uh, $55,000. Yeah. So you could do that every year or was, was like the next year you could only do 15% of the previous? Uh, it was the original amount, I believe, $255,000. And working as a senior pension analyst, I mean, I wasn't earning six figures, but because I was also a personal finance journalist, money coach, uh, worked at the supermarket, yeah. as well as a landlord, I was able to earn over six figures and I was saving like as much money as I could. I didn't go on any extravagant vacations. I kind of, uh, I guess the best vacations I went on was uh, camping with my family or maybe a weekend trip to Niagara Falls because I just kind of buckled down and well, wanted I was gonna, to save as much as possible. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, so people think that they need to spend a lot of money to have fun. And, and so the everyone's uh, first assumption is you had absolutely no fun <laughs> during all of this time. The, the time that it took you to save the money when you bring, like basically your whole life. Uh, you've never had any fun. Uh, so, yeah, you just talked about uh, camping. What, what else would you do to uh, entertain yourself? 
Well, first thing first, I mean, I don't think a certain amount of money uh, necessarily makes you happy. I mean, there have been studies that have shown that as long as you have a basic amount of money to have shelter and food and water and all that, you can be happy. And I've, you know, I've heard stories from some of my friends who have traveled all around the world and even people in third world countries seem happier than the people in North America and they have barely anything at all. It's so. true. We assume that they're not happy because of maybe their living situation mm-hmm. is different than ours, but we don't know. Y- you ask them, they're probably okay. And I mean, I, I don't think necessarily spending money and uh, going out to restaurants and all that could, will make you happy. I mean, it, it gets mostly about, you know, the company that you keep, the friends and family um, that you hang around. And um, in terms of spending money, if you hang around people that like to spend ten, tons of money, well, guess what? You're probably going to spend a lot of money. So uh, my best advice would be find people who, I guess, have uh, maybe similar spending habits or aren't necessarily like spend thrifts and share some uh, like share some uh, similar viewpoints to you because I had people who were supportive of my goal to pay off my mortgage. They weren't, you know, second guessing me uh, every uh every day and saying I was wasting my life. They cheered me on um, along the way. And uh, you can even use the analogy, like if you're going to the gym, it's great to have a workout buddy to kind of keep you motivated. And same with me, I kind of had my friends and family as cheerleaders to cheer me on as I set this crazy goal of paying off my mortgage in three years. That's that's really uh, good. You're, you're really fortunate to have people like that uh, in your life. And I think that this applies to to anybody who is trying to do something different or change their life because it's, I mean I have a history with addiction uh, you know I've been very open about my past and uh, the worst thing would would be if you're trying to do something positive to be around people who are negative because you'll be able to do it but it's much harder and it takes much more willpower to do it and the more that it's against the grain of the of normal society as you're, you know, working, uh, you know, all these jobs and and paying down your mortgage very quickly, you know, is apparently against what society wants, because <laughs> uh, you know, otherwise everybody would be writing books like this, right? Wouldn't they? Burning mortgages. They would be every burning mortgages all across the country, and maybe they will, and and Hopefully. let's hope that they do. You know, let's let's start a start a movement here, but I mean, just the fact that uh, that you got so much coverage and you're able to write this, at, you know, at your age is not uh, something everybody is doing. And so people really resist that. And, and so to have uh, 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 people to rally around you is, is r- really good and positive. And I think everybody should have that. Sometimes you have to change your life to do that. I want to talk a little about regrets and sacrifice. I don't like the word regrets. Neither do I. Let's uh, replace it with kittens or a nicer Yeah, exactly. Word. Exactly. I like it. But, uh, you know, because one of the things, if you're in uh, addiction recovery, is the first thing you have to get over is any regrets. If you hold on to regrets, you'll never move forward. Famous philosopher uh, Drew Barrymore said, (laughs) I never regret anything because every little detail of your life is what made you into who you are in the end. And I agree with Drew. I believe that you should live the life that you choose with no apologies all your choices may not work out, but as long as you learn from those choices, you come out an improved person. So people like to ask you if you have any regrets. I've, I've uh, listened to a couple of interviews, and that it comes up. I think that people ask this question when they feel like you made choices that they wouldn't make. And so what they're actually asking you 
is, so that thing you did, which was obviously a really bad decision, do you realize now that you totally went about it the wrong way? And do you see now that you should have done that thing like everyone else does it and not be weird? Please tell the world that you feel bad about the choices you made so that everyone listening can justify to themselves why they didn't do what you did. And I, um, I really believe that. I think asking someone if they have regrets, what is it really supposed to be doing? What are you trying to find out? And, and I just, so you don't, uh, you obviously, you think regrets is a bad word, but uh, I'm just hoping you don't have any. Well, I mean, as they say, hindsight is 2020, and looking back, um, perhaps I could have paid off my mortgage over five or six years and had more fun, but I like living in, you know, the here and the now, the present moment. Absolutely. And in the present moment, I don't have a mortgage, and I've achieved financial freedom, as I say in my book, and um, it's all about figuring out why you're doing something like this, like why you're paying off your mortgage if, um, you know, banks on TV just tell you to put money towards your RSP, but you can't really picture like what financial freedom is going to look like for you, then it's not really going to resonate with you. But once you have that goal, once you have that picture in your mind of exactly what financial freedom is going to be, whether it's relaxing on a beach, volunteering, or taking a less stressful job, um, that's kind of what motivates you at the end of the day. So for me, I can travel as much as I want. Um, I can... Uh, work fewer hours, I can spend time with family and friends, and that's what really matters to me at the end of the day. So maybe I had regrets uh, during a week that I was working like 100 hours, but sure. right now I never have to do that again uh, unless I want to. And and I think that's a really good good outlook because if you're just like, you know, I wasted my life. Like, I mean, how could you? And, and why would people think that you did? You made this choice, and you know sometimes regrets. Like you could say, like you know, if if you have mental health issues and things happen to you, maybe you didn't make those choices, so you might regret that. But or, or something that was out of your control, or something you did was a mistake. But y you were conscious of all of the things you were doing, and it was all very intentional. So the question about regrets, I think, I just wanted to address that and and address that people want you to have regrets so they they feel better. I think that's really what it is. And then along with that goes sacrifice. The word sacrifice, it originally meant uh, to offer or kill an animal, person, or possession for a divine or supernatural reason. It makes me think of that Creed song, My Sacrifice. <laughs> that's right. I'll play it at the end. Uh, how about that? Sounds good. Uh, but the, the definition of sacrifice has, has become the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. And uh, so people, <laughs> you know, you, in essence, you know, gave up one thing for something you felt was more important, right? You gave up the uh, apparently the thing that 20-some-year-olds do and go have bottle service, <laughs> uh, which, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I never did. But in essence... That's what you gave up, but people call it a sacrifice. Like people call like, uh, uh, I didn't get to go to McDonald's because I didn't have the money and I had to stay home and make my my own dinner a sacrifice. <laughs> and I think like it's just ridiculous. Like let's let's really not use this word anymore for that. And uh, do you feel like you made any sacrifices? Um, in a in a simple word, um, no. I mean, um, this is something that I wanted to do and I mean I, I certainly I guess sacrifice certain things like time but at the end of the day um, you know I 
worked hard for three years and now I have the rest of my life to enjoy. So I kind of saw it as a short-term pain for long-term gain. And as I told you previously, um, I kind of live in the moment. So um, the past is a past and I'm not going to think about that anymore. It might have seemed like pain at the time, probably, uh, you know, at some points, as you said. I certainly but don't enjoy waking up at 5 a.m. and writing. No, uh, yeah, it be, if you have to, right? Like, I mean, if you feel like you have to meet deadlines, I'm sure it can be uh, a little bit painful. I'm a slacker now. I wake up at like 6.30. Six, uh, yeah, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> but I want to talk about the other uh, bits of your book. So I like the concept of lifestyle inflation and uh, forced savings. Those are, those are uh, really interesting parts of your book that you talk about. Do you want, can you talk a little bit about lifestyle inflation or what it is and how you're able to avoid it making all the money that you did? Sure. So lifestyle inflation essentially is you see your neighbor's uh, driveway and see the shiny car and then hear about all their great travel adventures and then you kind of feel compelled to spend to keep up with them. It's, I guess the old saying, keeping up with the Joneses has been uh, replaced with keeping up with the Kardashians. So yeah. um, you definitely feel some pressure. And even I remember going to school when I was younger, hearing about all the amazing trips that other children were going on, like Disney World or I don't know where else, like South America. And my parents would go to like Kingston, Ontario. and that Or, was or Yorkdale. Yorkdale yeah, Mall. Yorkdale Mall was our idea of a vacation. So I definitely, you know, kind of felt jealous back then. But then when I got older and wiser, I kind of thought, well, maybe they're going on all these great trips, but how are their parents actually paying for this stuff if the father's like working at as a manager at McDonald's? It just didn't kind of yeah, add, up. add up. So, right. you know, you can look, I guess successful and wealthy from the outside but it all depends on how you're paying for all this stuff somebody could have two bmws in their driveway but you don't know whether they own them or they're leasing them or you know they're up to their ears in debt they've taken out some massive home equity line of credit and uh, they have no equity in their house so um, it all depends on uh, how they paid for this stuff and my main uh, lesson from the book is stop comparing yourself to other people because it's only going to end up like uh, make you feel pressure to spend and just kind of be happy with uh, where you are in your life right now because there's always going to be someone more successful and looks like they're having a better life than you so why make yourself unhappy just kind of be happy with what you've achieved personally and uh, stop looking at other people because um, you're just going to be disappointed in the end. Yeah, I, I really, and this is throughout the book, I like this theme of, you know, be yourself and, you know, just own it. Everybody thinks that you should be like them and uh, maybe you're not like them. Maybe you're you. And that, I think that's really important. Everybody has their own style and everything that they want. And if you're, if you think I need this, new car because person at work or person in my life has the car, their situation is different. And no matter, why do you want to be like them? But just case in point, uh, if you don't have a vehicle, it can be a deal breaker with some girls. So, you know, just keep that in mind. So so buy a car for girls. Yes, only. Uh, that's okay. a good investment. Okay, good. That's not in the book, but I like that. Um, so in the second edition. And the, other <laughs> in the up updated dating edition <laughs> of Burn Your Mortgage. So the other concept that I like is uh, for savings. And I, I like to think that people can make a plan to save and stick to it. But I'm starting to accept that people maybe need some more incentive 
than just that. Like if, if they make a plan and they can't stick to it, what can they use to help them, right? So if someone has great cash flow but can't hold on to it, I'm going to flip this a little bit. Do you think that buying a house is a good way to help them not spend their money and at least build some kind of equity? If they've struggled for years to try to invest or save, maybe buying a house is their, their only way. What do you think? Well, as I mentioned in the book, you know, you have to have your finances in order to buy a house. I mean, if you have a ton of consumer debt, then you're not really in the position to buy a house. But going back to the forced savings point, if we look at RSPs, for example, you're technically not forced to put money into your RSP. It's up to the individual about if they want to save money for retirement. And if we look at the stats, about less than like a quarter of the population, 24% of people put even a dollar, like put any money at all in their RSP. But I'm sure if everyone That's had... so low. I know it, 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 it startles me and, you know, I'm, I'm shocked by that number. And, um, you know, I'm sure if people had defined benefit pension plans and other forced savings uh, vehicles, then, you know, they could put money away for um, retirement. But going back to the, like, savings uh, in, in terms of house, I would say my best advice is have, like, a, a treat kind of savings as, like, a spending line in your budget because if you're just saving whatever is left over at the end of the month, then um, guess what? There's probably not going to be... There's nothing left. Yeah, exactly. And um, a point that I talk about as well is, you know, in today's increasingly cashless society, it's so hard to keep track of how much money you're spending. Like, in the old days, you could... You had a certain amount of money in your you wallet. You would see what's left, yeah. Exactly, but with your credit card, even myself, like, I'm sometimes shocked some months, like, how quickly stuff adds up. Even Pay attention yeah. to how much you're spending. Even if you know you have it in, in, in your budget, sometimes it, it happens real quick. You go out to a dinner, or you go to a couple of dinners, and uh, suddenly your, your food budget is, uh, is blown. Exactly. And if it, if it was all in cash, like, I, I had to live on cash for, for a good number of years, when I went through my consumer proposal and there's really something to be said about having to keep enough money in your bank account to pay your rent. Cause if you don't, you can't pay your rent. There's no like, I'm going to just put everything on credit because I need the money in my account for rent. Well, but I need groceries too. So if I need groceries and rent, then maybe I can't go out to dinner tonight or for the next three months depending on what your budget's at. You know, I, I would recommend, and I'm sure, uh, uh, you know, Gail Vazoxlade would recommend this too, that everyone tries to put in their money in jars thing if they're having trouble with spending because to see cash come and go from the jars is very important for the understanding of cash flow and how it works. Exactly, because cash can easily slip through your fingers with how invisible it is th these days with credit cards and mobile payments like think about it some people look at their mobile phone over 100 times a day uh, and think about how tempting it is to you know order a starbucks on your phone and pick it up it's so convenient but that you uber know, eats even some personal finance experts i won't name them but you know they even say uh they're even shocked how much money they're spending on starbucks with their the phone app so yeah it's you're right convenience uh is like you know if you do use those apps which are, you know a lot of people do you, you got to make it a point of uh, of checking the balance like frequently so that you are aware so you know the the condition of of using all these automated stuff is uh it comes with the responsibility of looking at it 
it's not just you can't be blind to all this. Not stuff. out of sight, out of mind. That's right, and and a lot of people do. Speaking of, of that, so uh, you talk about a few ways to pay off debt in the book, and I I I, I just think it's funny. One's called the avalanche, and one is called the snowball method. Uh, you know, why are they like all about snow? First <laughs> of all. And is it like, is it, are they just trying to relate to Canadians or do they talk about like, is it avalanche and snowball like in Australia too? Why are all these winter themed debt repayment methods? Maybe comment on that. And then what, uh, what are these two different ways? Like you have debt to pay off. What are they all about? Well, I can't take full credit for those methods. Uh, Dave Ramsey actually made those two. Did he methods. coin those phrases? I'm not sure if he coined them, but he made them kind of famous. Okay, and, yeah. You know, those are the methods that he believes in. But he'd probably be pretty upset to hear that I actually own a credit card because he absolutely hates credit cards. <laughs> so I definitely didn't mention that to him when but I was on the show. But you pay it off, and uh, you know, you pay it off. Uh, what every week, every day, um, every well, month. Well, I mean, the, the credit, the whole idea of credit cards is, you know. Some people certain like it's about finding the way that motivates you to pay down debt. So, um, for example, the debt snowball, it's kind of an idea of like rolling a snowball down a hill. So you look at the different debts that you have, like let's say credit card A has $5,000 balance and credit card B has a $2,000 balance. If you put all your cash flow towards credit card B with the $2,000 balance and still pay the minimum on credit card A with the $5,000 balance, then you can get the first credit card paid off and then you'll be like, that's a small victory. Great. I have one credit card paid off and then pay off your next debt and your next debt after that. So that's it's motivation to, to keep going because you clear one, the small victories, as you said. Exactly. And with the uh, debt avalanche method, um, you look at the debt with the highest interest rate and then pay that off first and then go down to the lowest interest rate. So for example, let's say you had a retail credit card at 29% and then had like a visa at 19% and I guess a line of credit at 5%, you start with the retail credit card and still make the minimum payments on the other ones, but get the highest uh, interest rate debt out of the way first. And that way you're saving a ton of interest. But what I talk about in the book is just figure out the method that works best for you and then just get a plan into action and, uh, pay yourself first and figure out exactly how much money from your cash flow you can put towards your debt and then have that money automatically come out of your savings account or checking account and, and put it towards that debt right away as soon as you're paid. That way you're not tempted to spend and get into more debt. So take take care of it in the way that it, th this is emotional or psychological, those two, two, two different methods. You're still paying down debt, but the way that you pick it, it's like, like you said, if if uh, you know for the snowball method, if you had your five percent line of credit and it only had twenty dollars left, you're not gonna leave that twenty dollars there and pay off the really high uh, interest one. If you can just get rid of that twenty dollars, then you just have the idea of having one less payment to make is really motivating psychologically. As exactly. long as it doesn't take a long time and then you're letting the interest build up on the higher one. So a little bit of both uh, methods probably apply in different situations. Right? Yeah, and then going back to the mortgage point, I mean, um, you probably, uh, you know, most people aren't going to pay off their mortgage in three years like me, but maybe you want to have some sort of, I guess, uh, small celebration when you pay like $5,000 or $10,000 balance off your mortgage. At least it kind of keeps you motivated, but don't just throw like an elaborate uh, 
$5,000 mortgage burning party like me every time you pay off $5,000 because it can get quite That's expensive. right. You spent the money on that party because basically including your 170000 that you saved up, you're, you're like $450,000. I think $1,000 was uh, justified in that case. Okay, so let's uh, – we talked a lot about spending and behaviors and stuff, and uh, I'm not a homeowner. Right, and uh, I don't have a mortgage. Being a landlord's not really on a lot of people's bucket lists. Not anyone that I talk to, anyway. I like that you said, as one of the the pros of being a landlord, you get to run your own business. And and I know a lot of people, including my wife, who would not see the opportunity to run a business as a positive. Uh, it's just that's something they the last thing they want to do. But I get it. I like I know what you mean. Like running a business, you learn a lot, and and you're in, you're in charge and control. But being a landlord can be intimidating for some people. Maybe they're not handy or they don't have the time to deal with tenant issues. And then there's horror stories about tenants. Maybe you have a couple. Oh, yeah. Didn't, didn't somebody uh, uh, get divorced while they were living in your house? Oh, did I put that in the book? I <laughs> don't even remember. I think you put it in an interview that I, re- that I read or uh, listened to. Sorry. Yes. Uh, my uh, second set of tenants, unfortunately, got divorced while they were living in my house. And let's say it was a noisy divorce and I wasn't getting much sleep. It pretty much got to the point where um, I would uh, spend the weekend at my parents' house or or even at Starbucks or Tim Hortons to be away from the house. So wow. the main message of the book is to take the time and go through the proper steps to screen your tenant because it's a lot easier to screen out a bad tenant than it is to evict a uh, bad tenant once they're living in your house because it's, yeah, not, like yeah. it, it's not like the old days where like my parents had a rental property and one of the tenants wasn't paying his rent. So when he kind of went out for the day, they packed up his stuff and put it on the front lawn and he called the police. And then um, they're like, you didn't pay your rent, so you better get your stuff or it's going to get wet in the rain. Um, I don't think it would kind of play out this day and age. Not uh, with uh, the laws are in favor of the tenant for sure. Exactly, right. And so. uh, which is, was evidenced by that uh, professional tenant uh, guy who would just go and pretend that he was all wealthy. Do you remember reading about this guy? I, and he would uh, just go from house to house, and they just couldn't get him out, and he just seemed like all put together until it came time to pay the rent, and then he just wouldn't. Yeah, and you have to think about the motivation as a homeowner. Like, if you don't pay the mortgage, the bank's going to take away the house, but if the uh, tenant doesn't pay the rent, I don't believe it ruins their credit rating or anything. It's just going to make the landlord angry, and as, as we mentioned earlier, tenants have all sorts of right so your tenant's probably going to put the rent at the lowest priority of all their debts like they're probably going to pay off their credit card and all their other debt sooner because you know that's going to hurt their credit score at the end of the day that's a good point that that uh, a mortgage payment is on the top of the list for the landlord uh, to pay but the rental income is on the bottom of the list for the for the renter because as you said now that's that's for now that it doesn't affect their credit rating but Mm -hmm. in my interview with dwello they are changing the the credit score reporting and rent is going to be a big part of that so it's about time i mean yeah um, i'm looking forward to that maybe some tenants will think twice about paying their rent late if there was a record of imagine you could look at the last 20 years of somebody paying rent and and uh you know maybe a couple of times wouldn't bother you but if they were like a six month period every five years they didn't pay rent (laughs) that would that's red flags no matter how high their credit rating is and then hopefully it wouldn't be high if they had those blips in their just another thing to help the, t- the landlord. And speaking of screening your tenants, I remember um, it's so important to actually like phone the references in the previous landlords. Uh, maybe not the like 
current landlord they're with because they might be a bad tenant and the landlord might say like nice stuff just to get them out of the property but definitely phone like the last two or three landlords and do your fact checking because one tenant seemed great on paper when I met her she seemed great but then when I phone like her uh, previous landlord he's like oh you know she always paid the rent late she hasn't even given her notice and oh, she wow. did like thousands of dollars of damage to the uh, property so that's certainly but she not put him as a reference though yes yes oh, because she had to it was the last like the last landlord or like that was her choice to tell i you. mean it was it was the last landlord she could have just i guess put one of her friends Honestly. and lied but um you she know, probably should have but you know she was pressing me to know you know why i i didn't really want her as a tenant and <laughs> I, I didn't tell her but you know she probably uh, why do you think yeah i mean she should probably uh think twice before you know, doing thousands of dollars worth of damage and expecting a good reference yeah i mean i hope people at least learn from that i was wondering what do your tenants think about having a landlord who lives in the basement first of all and is probably younger than them i'm guessing yes and is famous for paying off his mortgage <laughs> well i've tried to keep it a secret from them but you, you can't know, really much now tv crews coming by <laughs> my house is kind of impossible that, that's so. a little bit of a tip-off uh, do they forget sometimes that you own the house because you're just like one one guy and you're young? Like, oh, yeah, you're the owner and we're not. I mean, it, it's great for them because, you know, it's like they own a house themselves. And In a way, you know, right? No, nobody is the wiser and I'm not really at my house very often. So, you know, they can uh, um, enjoy the house like it's their own. But they're definitely very considerate tenants and I'm happy to have them. I mean, they're like dream tenants. They've been there over two years and they're yeah, nice that's and lucky. They're nice and considerate. I mean, um, they have they have a n newborn child, and I guess it was, uh, their child was making a bit of noise, uh, like a bit of noise from crying, and you know they apologize for that. But if I go back to my tenants before that, they were screaming and having all sorts of no yeah. noise at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> so it all depends on who you pick as tenants, and in my opinion, it's good to pick tenants that have similar personalities to you because if you're the type that like right. likes quiet activities, like working on the computer or reading and your tenants are always entertaining and throwing parties i think you're probably going to uh, be at odds with each other especially if you're a landlord like living on the property and you're crazy like me and you live in the basement that's right <laughs> well and you also talk about i did read some of the parts about uh about houses even though i don't have one about ways to uh, soundproof and uh you know there's simple ways to keep the noise from the top from getting into the bottom without spending a lot of money. So people, if they're worried about noise, look into that. Like I said, uh, especially about this place that I live in right now, the only thing that comes through is the ventilation. You can't stop the air from coming through and it's all connected to everybody else who has air in the house anyway. And if you don't feel like spending $10,000 in soundproofing, there's always uh, uh, earplugs from uh, Walmart. You can get them for like $5, That's right. I think. That's a simple solution <laughs> to, to uh, somebody partying a bit too late. Do they worry that you're going to give them 60 days notice now that the house is paid for? <laughs> that funny. you're going to like move um, into the top? After the uh, story aired, they yeah. actually like sent me an email and said, you know, uh, <laughs> are you going to move upstairs or anything? And I'm like, like what? Eventually, wh probably though, right? I'm not sure. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'd like to eventually, but for me, I'm living on my own now. And upstairs, there's three bedrooms, yeah. two bathrooms. Uh, and uh why would I need all that space? And I'm never home. Like not if, now. From a cash flow perspective, it just doesn't make sense to uh, live upstairs. Uh, like I talk about, like I wrote a blog post. Like Canadians have the third largest houses in the world behind Australians and Americans. People are obsessed with big houses. So really, still big here, right? Yeah, and 
real estate is so expensive in, in Toronto and I'm happy with my like modest bungalow. People are asking me, you know, when are you going to sell your house and get an even bigger house? But this house is plenty big and it's actually well, you, you only need the basement right now. Yeah. And in the basement, you know, they make it like seem like a dungeon, but it's actually like 1100 square feet, like bigger than most condos. In That's downtown that Toronto, is pretty big. So. I lived in basements for a lot of my 20s, probably all of my 20s. And they were probably more like 400 to 600 square feet, if not, <laughs> if not less than that. This is a three-bedroom bungalow, uh, you know, a spacious bungalow in, yeah. uh, you know, um, in the suburb area of Toronto. So uh, it's pretty nice hardwood floors and fireplace. It's not like, you and know. And the basement's all uh, developed as well. Yes, I mean, yeah. um, and luckily I didn't have to renovate anything my, myself. It was already done. So it was like a dream house for me. That's good because people talk about conditions on the offer. You have three sections in the book. The first one is about ways to change your life so you can achieve your goals, right? And we talked about that a lot. Second is how to buy a house. And the third is what to do when you have the house. In so many words, those are the three sections. Mm-hmm. My favorite things from the second part is uh, uh, buying too much house, needs versus wants, and, and then conditions. And I just read that people are not getting as many home inspections anymore because that will make them not get the house. Is that happening? Yes, definitely. I mean, my sister works as a real estate agent, so I kind of hear about what's going on in the real estate market. But I th- believe I talk about it in the book. I thought I'm buying a house and, you know, the way that my parents bought a house, they always had the condition of home inspection and financing in all their offers. So I thought, you That's know. That's standard to me. That should be standard all the way, especially the home inspection. Exactly. But the thing is, in today's crazy market in Toronto, when people are making 10 offers or more on a house, you can actually be the highest bidder. But if you have conditions like condition of home inspection or financing, the sellers know that you could kind of weasel out of the deal if you wanted to. So they would rather take a for sure thing. So if somebody makes a clean offer, which means an offer without any conditions, and you know, they can kind of finalize the uh, deal that night there and not have to go through waiting a few extra days for a home inspection, then they might accept an offer for slightly lower amount. And that actually happened to me. I think I offered $5,000 over somebody else and I had the two conditions of financing and home inspection. And this was a really nice house and I would have been happy in it. But my real estate agent was like, you have to keep all these conditions in your first time home bar. You should have these conditions in to protect yourself, but ended up losing out on the house. And I was disappointed on that. And I ended up going with another real estate agent, but that's not to say, you you know, you should go in with a a clean offer. Um, There are other options. For example, a trend in Toronto and other housing markets is that sellers are actually like paying for home inspection themselves instead of the buyer so that you know I like that because they see it as buyers like know that independent third-party home inspector looked at the house and looked at the issues with it and they can kind of go in like make offers with more confidence and there might be some people where they see there's a ton of offers and they don't want to like pay for a home inspection in advance and have no guarantee of getting the property and that will likely lead to fewer like offers on the property so yeah that's definitely a trend with uh, sellers these days and if you don't want to have the condition of financing get pre-approved for a mortgage and that way you can kind of at least uh, you know have some peace of mind knowing that the chances are your mortgage is going to be approved yeah that one makes sense to me that people want people who have financing already it just the the inspection thing just kind of throws me off because so you get this house because you didn't have the inspection in there and then you find that you have to uh, have a twenty thousand dollar cost to fix something that probably should have been fixed by the seller before they sold it right 
But then again, there are a lot of great home inspectors out there like Mike Holmes and other people. But in a lot of provinces, it's an unregulated industry. So you really have to do your homework when hiring a home inspector because you can pretty much do like a weekend course and call yourself a home inspector. I mean, if I wanted to open my own home inspection company tomorrow, I could do it even though I have no background and I can barely fix a light switch myself. So it's not just that, that there is a home inspection. Make sure it's a home inspection that is trusted. To address those two other things, the concept of buying too much house, you talk about that a lot, and I think that that's a big deal too. You know, you said we have the third largest houses. Uh, I mean, Texas probably has the largest ones because <laughs> uh, everything's big in Texas, right? What does that mean? What does buying too much house mean, and why are people doing it? Okay, so the idea of buying too much house is, let's say you go and get pre-approved for a mortgage like I recommend in my book, and then the uh, bank says, oh, you can go out and spend, let's say, up to $800,000 on a house, but the keywords are up to. I mean, most people don't crunch the numbers and see exactly how expensive the carrying costs will be at a house. So besides, uh, like if, if you're not a homeowner, you might not know this, but besides the mortgage payments, you're also going to have to pay um, utility costs, uh, property taxes, home insurance, and houses aren't cheap. They tend to have issues like uh, you have to get the roof repaired, your furnace might break down, like my furnace just broke down a couple weeks ago. I had to spend $1,300 out of the blue. So there's always an ongoing list of expenses. And if you buy too much house, you can find yourself house rich and cash poor with no money to save, let alone have fun. So your house can feel like a prison with your mortgage as a life sentence. And if you can never travel or go out to restaurants, I'm sure your spouse isn't going to be very happy. So it's probably not a good thing for your marriage either. That's right. I, I mean, when we did look at houses, I took the rate hub calculator, which I really like, but it really kind of adds up. And I think in certain situations, we were left with like uh, $100 uh, left every month. And that's Just assuming, I guess, nothing goes assume wrong. It, well, I mean, the, obviously, we had some contingencies in there mm-hmm. for, for the things that that go wrong, but maybe just the regular things, as you said. But to just have like, oh, okay, good, we just made it. That that's not a good way to live. And um, you're living that way for the next, I guess, 25 years. Yeah, uh, according you know. to the amortization, let's, absolutely. Let's and, uh, hope by you know you have a job for life, a gold-plated gov- government pension. Right. When why you know why do we enter into these these contracts to to pay these things for 25 years when we have no idea, right, what's going to happen? Exactly. Some people call a mortgage a life sentence, and you know that's the idea of my book ending the life sentence and enjoying that financial freedom while you're still young enough to be able to travel and, you know, you're not old and gray. No like offense to those people. No, no, but I, I, and you're right. I mean, you don't know if you're going to get sick or, or, or any, what's going to happen to you. Some people plan to work forever. Like my father said he was going to, you know, work until 75 or older, but then he got injured one day on the job. He was a Canada Post letter carrier and he broke his ankle and that was at age 57 and now like he is disabled and has Parkinson's disease and he definitely can't work anymore so you know he had that idea of working forever but fortunately he has a great government pension plan but he definitely couldn't have foreseen all that stuff happening so definitely goes to show that don't make the assumption that you can uh, work forever and going back to houses don't assume house prices will go up uh, forever either because uh, you know a lot of people are banking on the fact that homes will keep going up at this crazy rate but we could we could probably have a whole other interview just (laughs) about that Uh, along with buying too much house goes 
needs versus wants. And I think uh, people actually have no idea what the difference is between those two things. Like nobody needs granite or marble countertops. (laughs) You don't, that's not a need. What you need is a countertop that when you cut things on it, it doesn't collapse or is not jello. That's all that. Those are the basic needs for a countertop. Believe an example I used in the book was my friend uh, Patricia wouldn't step foot inside a house unless it had hardwood floors or <laughs> granite countertops. And um, I, I changed her name just to kind of be nice to her. But yeah, yeah I, I know some people who, you know, won't step foot inside a house unless, uh, you know, it has uh, certain things that people considered luxuries 50 years ago. Uh, but, you know, today some people consider a need. I mean, my parents, when they bought their first house, they couldn't even afford furniture. So they were using like cardboard boxes as like tables. I mean, uh, makeshift tables. I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing that myself, but just goes to show how people are so obsessed with owning stuff these days. And that's it's fine, right? Like if you want something, for sure, don't take a house that has stuff that you hate. But if you're going and looking at houses and nothing ever works out for you and it's all stuff outside of your range, maybe you have to adjust a little bit. And I, I think people have a lot of uh, trouble with that. I think everyone just goes out with this dream. And who's telling them that they can have all of this all at once? You can't have everything all at once, somebody said. I mean, I don't mean to, like, uh, dump on the baby boomers, but, you know, I think a lot it's of... their uh, fault. Bab- yeah, I mean, everyone loves to assault the baby boomers, but... I think they've kind of raised these millennial children with these grand dreams of owning these amazing houses like they've grown up at home. And then I guess their millennial children are kind of shocked when all they can afford is some shoebox condo and they don't have any hope of buying, you know, this uh, 3,000 square foot house or whatnot. Um, but you're, kind of you're a, a millennial. Shock. Why aren't you like this? Why don't you have these uh, crazy dreams in your head? I mean, you, you got the house that you wanted, but it was based in reality. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a million dollar house in downtown Toronto, right? It's a half a million dollar house outside of Toronto, like uh, on the outskirts, right? Um, Scarborough, right? Uh, I, I kind of have stricken that word from my oh, vocabulary. Oh, I see, okay. Technically, <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, but Toronto, yeah. Mm-hmm. Close enough, you still bike, uh, you're biking to work, right? Yes, I bought my house and I wanted to be able to commute in to work uh, by biking every day, so it's a 45-minute bike ride from my uh, house to my work. Yeah, so you're, you're close enough. So wh- what gave you this reality dose that people don't have? I think my views about money are, are a lot to do with how my parents raised me because growing up, they were always homeowners and diligent savers, so that kind of put that mentality in my mind and... I find if your parents had a lot of credit card debt or travel a lot, then you might think that's normal for everyone else. But my parents did it that way and they kind of instilled the importance of like owning a home. So that was always the goal of mine, even at a young age, even when I was, I guess, 10 years old, I knew that I wanted to own a that house. That early, eh? I mean, there's nothing wrong with having, I guess, no that credit card debt and all this stuff yeah. if you're fine with that lifestyle. But for me, I believed in the all the benefits of owning a house, like the forced savings, uh, the government encourages you to own a house by offering you tax breaks, and you can even make income from it as a landlord. So, you know, there are plenty of benefits, and I think it's a good long-term investment. So that's why I wanted to own a house as, uh, as young as it made sense. Do you think that, you know, for those of us who don't you know, have parents who kind of instilled this goal-setting or saving or, or frugality in us do you think the the schooling if it gets a little bit better that'll help 
Definitely. I mean, I don't even know if they teach you like home ec anymore. I don't think they teach you how to cook or iron or do any of that stuff. Yeah, like, like um, what's happening? I know. I, I mean, we pretty much have to learn about it the hard way. I guess with cooking, you know, you have to burn down your kitchen a couple times before you learn. It'd you be know. nice to have more formal cooking in school. I mean, I know that they did have home ec when I was in high school, and I mean, I didn't take it. I don't know why. I, I probably should have. I could cook a little bit, but it just makes sense now. Everybody should it like should be mandatory. If gym is mandatory. Home ec is mandatory or, or like home skills, anything to do with finances or being able to take care of your life and, and save and that kind of stuff. With your money, like that's kind of the culmination of everything that you're working towards in your life. Uh, if you work hard and you have no money to show because you don't understand basic stuff like budgeting, then that's unfortunate. I mean, I don't think everybody should have to go through a bad experience with a credit card before learning gosh, I should pay more than the minimum payment. I mean, I think people should be educated and understand stuff like minimum payments and how compounding of interest works and uh, other stuff because, you know, uh, you don't want to learn about it the hard way when you realize removing your credit card statement is going to take you um, 15 years to pay off your credit card balance if you only pay the minimum balance. It's a tough lesson to learn. I, I mean, I, I learned it not because of just general misunderstanding because of, of the gambling addiction, unfortunately. But uh, it is still is tough to learn about that you shouldn't have seven credit cards, which I did, uh, probably more at one time in my life. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty bad time. And, uh, you know, but uh, I learned a lot. And the, the only upside to having going, gone through all that and to anyone who learns it the hard way is that you never do it again. But we wouldn't wish that on anybody. You learn from it, but uh, you don't want to have to go through it. Well, I have a lot of other things to talk to you about, but I we're probably uh, good to leave it here because you have a lot of great stuff in this book, and I could go on forever. But we don't want to give away all the good stuff. No, it, that's it. So, himself. like, there's there's so many other great things in Sean's book. He actually has a really good section about side hustles, which everybody should have one. Look up uh, pl selling plasma because I think <laughs> it's only in other provinces, right? Yes, I don't not in Ontario. Do Ontario. Yeah. Okay, but I did. I did find you. If you're in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, you can sell your plasma. Wisconsin as well, but that's not in Canada. That's not. Yeah. If you just need a little bit extra money, there are many, many ways, and it comes down to just wanting to do these things. If you think that you can't do them because of some sort of work model, like you can only have one job, or you don't know how to do that, or or what will people think? You know, just try to let go of that stuff because if you don't want it, fine. But if you want something, you should be able to do what you need to do to get there like Sean did. So so thanks so much, Sean. I really enjoyed this, and uh, thanks for coming here. My pleasure. Hopefully you'll have a big mortgage burning party yourself one day, and, uh, you know, I'll bring the champagne for you. <laughs> <laughs>